0: Hello and welcome to the Longform Podcast. I'm Aaron Lammer here with Evan Ratliff and I don't know where Max Linsky is, but we're, we're just going to keep on plowing on. Max is off this week, Aaron, but, uh, but what have you got for us on the show? Uh, this week, repeat guest Rachel Aviv. Uh, she writes for The New Yorker. I love her writing. A lot of it is about the human brain and uh, how science understands the human brain and what science doesn't understand about the human brain. Uh, I guess you could loosely file this all around uh, mental health. Um, She has a new ish book out called strangers to ourselves, unsettled minds and the stories that make us. The book was actually not what I expected. I think I have like a general suspicion that everyone who writes for a magazine comes out with a book. It's just a like loose rewrite of uh, magazine stories they've (laughs) published. This was not the case with this book. It's a really interesting blend of some personal history about her kind of bookending the book and then a series of case studies of patients that are interesting in various ways and reveal various uh, things about Uh, the science of psychiatry over time, et cetera. I thought the book was fascinating and I was very, very excited to talk to her. Yeah, this is one of the the dilemmas we face on this show and having done it for so long is we've had a lot of guests and they keep making amazing things. They keep uh, putting out books, making amazing shows. We can't have them all two or three times because we will run out of slots for guests, but uh, it's always really fun when we have someone back. Yeah, and it's interesting to talk to people about you know how your own writing evolves over the better part of a decade, which was something that I, I talked to Rachel about. Um, we are brought to you, of course, in partnership with Vox Media, who help us make this show. Thanks to Vox. And now here's Aaron with Rachel Aviv. Hey, Rachel. Hey. It has been almost nine years since you were on this show. I have literally no recollection of what we talked about. One of the things that I, I was kind of curious about, because it's rare to get to be talk to people at such long life intervals, is how you feel like your writing has evolved over those nine years.
1: Well, I do remember what story I was working on when I was interviewed by you nine years ago. And I remember I didn't end up liking that story that much. Um, and I think I went through two different phases and how I like conceive of stories that have maybe changed since that time. Um, for a while, I was always like really anxious about telling a story that felt like a good story, but without knowing like what the point was was kind of like that was always this source of like tension whenever I was writing something like what purpose is this serving um and then I think at some point I my editor kind of helped me see that like sometimes you could tell a good story and you'd kind of figure like it didn't have to have such a predictable like social or political um not message, but takeaway, maybe like sometimes it can be a lot less, um, like tangible, but now I feel like I'm in a phase where so many stories do feel predictable. Like you kind of, there's a certain kind of story where you read the first section and you know what's going to happen at the end. Like, you know, the person is going to be innocent and he was wrongly convicted as, as horrible as that sounds. Um, or you know that a like a grave injustice took place and the story will tell like the Kafka-esque tale of that. And that now also feels a little problematic or less exciting. And maybe that's like dark to say, because then there are all these injustices, and like, what are you supposed to do? Not write about them. But I think I've been more conscious of like not wanting to write a story where you kind of know what the social and political, like heart of it is like just based on the way this opening is framed.
0: You write a lot about institutions, Mm -hmm. uh, whether they be hospitals, prisons, universities. And I think as people who digest a lot of journalism and media, your assumption is that the role is going to, um, criticize the institution, to be outraged at the shortcomings of the institution. And I often found in your work when I was sort of reviewing it that you also put yourself, the writer, in the role of the institution and sort of are able to depict institutions as being groupings of people who are flawed, much like the people that they're interacting with. I mean, the one I guess that came to mind is the piece you wrote about a student at Penn. Yeah.
1: yeah. And
0: their interactions in which they um, had a uh, Rhodes scholarship and I believe a social work degree uh, stripped because of this idea that they had misrepresented uh, their own past. And the story to me reads as something of a tragedy in that it doesn't really end well for anyone. But there's a, a certain sort of, um, yeah, I guess like a, a sort of haze through which you can imagine that the people in within the institution also believe that they are doing the right thing.
1: Right. Yeah. And I had no doubt that they did for a while believe they were doing the right thing. And then I think something kicks in and they're kind of protecting themselves. Um, but maybe I think what was compelling to me was that in the hope of fulfilling these very like progressive inclusive ideals the university like is still run by people who kind of didn't understand like what it looks like on the ground to have the ideals that they're espousing and so like the mistake was born of a kind of like well-meaning ignorance about the problem that they were actually trying to address. So, like, so I guess fundamentally, it did still feel like a failure of elitism. But, but I like, I guess, I never doubted that they were trying to do good in the world.
0: So, you have a uh, new book out. It's called uh, "Strangers to Ourselves." And I don't normally quote things uh, on this podcast, but there's no way I can paraphrase this quote, uh, as well as the actual quote uh, leads into some of the stuff I'd like to talk about. So I'm going to read the quote. Uh, There's a quote from the book. It says, there are stories that save us and stories that trap us. And in the midst of an illness, it can be very hard to know which is which and one of the first things I, I thought of when i read that was that you had been uh writing this book probably during covid which is um one of the greatest uh um medical narrative genesis events uh, in human history so uh, what was that like um writing this book uh, amidst what was going on in the world
1: i think i i i think i just went through the usual thing that probably a lot of writers were where like suddenly you don't know if anything you're writing feels relevant. Like the world has changed so much um, that do we need to adopt a new way of like writing a new, totally new sphere of subjects. Um, And then I think it like, I got to a point where writing about what was happening became repetitive and like all of the sense of immediate crisis faded and then it did actually feel like mental health was was like something that was unresolved and like was it were we having a mental health crisis in this country like that was the phrase that kept getting used or was it that like no we were having like a political and a medical crisis and so it's natural to like find everyone in this state of feeling totally alone and distressed I mean, I guess those two things aren't at odds, but I think sometimes it's framed as like the the epidemic of mental illness, and it's actually just all these people responding to this horrible thing that has happened.
0: Maybe you could talk me a little bit like through how you study psychiatry and and how you sort of regard the idea of science and truth uh, within your stories. And how do you uh, write about the truth of psychiatry at one moment, which is changing moment to moment and, you know, over decades has evolved massively?
1: I guess that's why I'm so interested in psychiatry, because it's like the sense of what is true just shifts so much with each generation. And I, I don't think like psychiatry is an aberration. I think all fields of science have an element of that. But there's just more potential for this like amazing interaction that takes place with the truth about our minds, and then our minds sort of adapt to that truth in ways. There's more of a potential for interaction if we're given being given these like external scientific insights about how our minds work. We may adjust our behavior in relation to those theories. And that that does feel like more one of the reasons I'm drawn to writing about it.
0: There's kind of a bonus, it seems like, with um, the history of psychiatry in that um, people seem to have kept really detailed notes. Um, well, I was impressed in your book. Uh, I actually, I don't know if you explain how you got it in the book. I may have missed it. Uh, the book opens with an account of your own experience uh, being hospitalized for anorexia as a six-year-old, and you're on this hospital floor uh, with another girl, and you, ha- it seems, have, like, direct access to her diary entries during that period. I mean, that's just an incredible, incredibly uh, illuminating thing to be able to, to peer into, uh, you know, deep into the past.
1: Yeah, I mean I I've, I've written a lot of stories that involve people's diaries but never do I appear as a character in their diaries like that was a very um I, it was just like an alarming and uncanny moment reading them but the the way it came about was I didn't even know what had happened to this girl Hava um but when I went back and interviewed my doctors from the hospital um, a couple of years ago. I'd asked about her because I always really admired her and remembered her. And it turned out she had just died weeks before. Um, and then I gave it some time and reached out to her mother. And then her mother just happened to be coming to New York and and like grabbed a few of her daughter's journals. She had lots and lots of journals in her basement, but she, she just grabbed some of the earliest ones, like came to meet me in New York. And I came to her hotel and she, she had some of those journals on her bed and I started reading them. And then I came to her house later on and read the rest of the journals.
0: What was it like trying to do journalism about your own past? How how did you try to reconstruct your own experiences?
1: I had, you know, some vivid memories from that time, um, but not quite enough to like construct a story. And so I, yeah, I wanted to interview everyone who had memories to piece it together. So I interviewed my family members and my former therapists and doctors. And then luckily my mom just kept a lot of like journals and um, like paper, you know, cause my parents had gotten divorced. So there was a lot of paperwork generated in that um, court case. And then, I was able to get some of the medical records too. So it did, yeah, it did feel very much like, and also just a six-year-old is, is such a non, like it's it just, is not me. It's, it's this, I felt like I was approaching another person too, because it's, it's so hard to understand any six-year-old and, um, and my own understanding of myself was so limited. So it felt like I was coming at it from the outside, trying to, find out about a person who like fundamentally didn't exist anymore.
0: Why had you uh, not written about it before? What stopped you, I guess, from writing about the story until now?
1: I think there are a few things. I mean, I think I always felt like anorexia was a little bit boring. Um, you know, there's Alice Gregory, who, who's writing I really love. Uh, she had written this piece. I can't remember the phrase she used, but something like you know, there's like nothing so boring as writing about anorexia. Um, it did feel like it, I just like couldn't access it. Some I couldn't like open it up in a way that felt compelling to me. And I, I just want to like, I think the reason that anorexia can be boring is it's often like the same kind of story that gets told about it, about the same kind of girls. And so it just feels so familiar and so like culturally determined. And so I didn't want to just write about it because this weird thing had happened to me. The only reason I actually did want to write about it is because I became interested after I was writing, I had written this piece for the New Yorker about children in Sweden um, from former Soviet States who'd been denied asylum. Um, And they were diagnosed with this illness called resignation syndrome where they stopped moving and they stopped eating. And I remember pitching that story to my editor and like, in my attempt to show him, I think at that time there were a lot of stories about refugee children and, and maybe I would, like the New Yorker was not interested in another one and sort of, I remember to try to show him that this was something different. I like had put this little asterisk saying that it reminded me of something that had happened to me as a child. And I do think that that's when I started thinking about um, the ways in which you know, there's a certain core of distress that someone will have. And then the sort of stories or scripts that are available in a given culture or social community then shape that distress. And so once I I felt like I didn't have a framework to understand what had happened to me, and it was only once I had this framework that I was interested in for all sorts of reasons that I felt like there was a reason to tell my story because it felt like a way to explain this larger question that I had.
0: In general, is that a common uh, quality of stories you had that you kind of don't really know like fully what it is and, until you start digging into it? Like taking these like New Yorker pieces a, as an example, how much of what's going to go into one of those stories do you know when you start pitching it?
1: Yeah, I think that's what I was trying to say at the beginning that. I used to feel that if I knew everything, that was a good sign. And I've become more aware that, like, if you know everything you want to argue, that's not such a good sign. Like, there has to be space to, like, I don't want to be able to predict everything. I want to, I I hope that I'll sort of change my views to some degree in the process of learning more.
0: Do you ever, like, go down that dark road? And find that you don't find it, that you, you trust yourself to find something and then there's nothing there?
1: Yes, definitely. Um, or that it feels kind of like stale or it just like I think it's more about do I have like a genuine question? Um, am I there's like something I'm trying to figure out that feels like then the story is worth telling. But if I don't really have a question, or if my question is already answered, then maybe that should give me pause.
0: What what did you feel like the central question that you needed to answer with the book was?
1: Like what it, I guess, you know, is there some sort of like true original, like unadulterated experience of illness that would exist regardless of culture and social interactions um or how much does that illness really get like shaped by like the world in which it exists and the way that people respond to it so i think like it felt to me maybe like the same question i had about my own experience like was i could that like you know if you stop eating as a kid you get a lot of attention and and you like signal how unhappy you are um and i wondered like what what was that impulse at its purest versus sort of what does what happens when that impulse is received by like your community and then it changes into something maybe a little different or very different
0: support for long form this week comes from listening if you find yourself behind the eight ball needing to read a bunch of academic papers or journals or any kind of dense reading material, you might make your life a lot easier by checking out listening. It takes anything, articles, books, PDFs, and turns the text into spoken word that you can absorb no matter what you're doing. The app has a lifelike AI voices complete with emotion and intonation that creates a realistic and pleasant listening experience. So I had to go into the city for some meetings. I needed to review some PDFs. Threw them in there, listen to them on the way. It was both pleasant and I kind of forgot that I wasn't like listening to a professionally done audiobook or something. Like very quickly, the voices sounded totally natural and human to me. This listening app might just transform how you consume reading material and you can give it a shot yourself, risk-free. Now, normally you get a two-week free trial, but listeners of long form get a whole month free. Go to listening.com slash longform or use the code longform at checkout listening. Your life just got a lot easier. I should be clear to people listening that um, the part of the book that really focuses on your experience is kind of a a bookend at at the beginning and end of the book. And the core of the book is a series of case studies is it fair to call them case studies they're uh, about the medical history of a person
1: yeah i guess i started thinking like it was it was a person but then their families felt so integral to it that i didn't know if case studies was the word i wanted to use
0: that that's fair and how did you pick these pseudo case studies? How, how out of the, you know, millions of um, uh, pages of um, academic medical literature did you land on? I think it's five case studies in the book.
1: Yeah. So the first I had interacted with Bhargavi, um, who was Bapu's daughter. So Bapu was this woman in India who was both, you know hospitalized for being schizophrenic and also sort of embraced um, when she would run away from her family for being a mystic and having access to the divine in a way that felt really profound for everyone who met her. Um, And I had met Bargavi several years earlier and I wanted to write a story about her, this nonprofit organization that she was running. And I remember thinking like, no, the story is not the nonprofit organization. That's not the story I want to tell. Like it's this family story that she has, but it didn't feel right for a New Yorker story, but it had always been something I wanted to return to. And then Ray Osharoff, I had known about him as well and had always been really interested. In, and finally I just called his lawyer and kind of asked what material he had left because he was dead by then. And when I learned that there were, you know, like 12 bank boxes of his memoirs and medical records, that was what prompted me to look into it more deeply. But then there were other people like Naomi, where I knew that I wanted the book to address like the way that psychiatry approaches race. And I felt like I was actively looking for almost a year for someone whose life story kind of required that history, like the history of how psychiatry has approached racial difference in order to really feel that her story had been told. So that that process was like some of the, I think some of the hardest parts of the book for me were, you know, like figuring out the stories I needed to make the book, like tell a larger story and um, and then like somehow finding that story.
0: There's a power in the book. To not knowing where the story is going, maybe this also ties into what you said. Your evolution was of being comfortable not going where you're reading about Ray Oshiroff for a pretty long time, where you're like, "All oh, right, this guy's like a, got a failed dialysis center. He's in this mental hospital." And the Ray Oshiro story almost feels like uh like a you could be writing a novel about it, and then it has this turn where you realize that um, he made this case against the first mental hospital he was in, uh, which did not use psychiatric drugs and basically, uh, you know, claimed that they had ruined his life and that he was owed all these damages uh, because of the way they treated him and that this became this landmark case. But um if you had flipped the order of those two revelations i'm not sure either of them would have worked.
1: Hmm. I don't know. I, I str- i'm curious what you think, but like i struggled with that chapter a lot more than the other chapters because uh, just because of who he was um and i felt like i had chosen that chapter because the case was so important. Like it really showed the, this collision between two different ways of understanding the mind. Um, but it, I think it was the first time I'd ever written about someone who was just agitating in the way that he was agitating. And I would like give that the draft to people and they'd be like, get him out of my face. Like, I, I don't want to <laughs> deal with him. Um, and that, so I, I I thought a lot about the structure as, you know, how to, how to create a structure in which, the reader's experience will not be one of like, God, this man is annoying me, but also like understanding how that feeling he created in people was part of why his treatment was so problematic. Like people just didn't know how to deal with him.
0: A lot of your stories deal with the idea of, um, competing truths Mm -hmm. and, um, I wonder how you think about that in terms of um, balance in your writing and also in terms of um, gauging which one of the truths uh, the audience is going to land on. Um, When I read your story about that uh, University of Pennsylvania student, I think I've landed pretty clearly on the um, she was wronged. Uh, by the university. I, I landed much closer to her truth. But when I read about Ray Osheroff, I think I ended up more in in, in the the middle. maybe that one's a little bit more of the sympathy for the institution's uh, side of the equation
1: right. I did feel sympathy for the institution because I thought that they were doing something like so beautiful, like they're the you know, this utopian idea that if you listen to someone for long enough, you'll understand them if you and if you don't understand them, it's you failed, not they, it's not some failure on their part. And they were trying so hard to apply that truth to him. Um, so I did f- think there was something really like, noble about that, um, even if it was maybe naive. But one of the things I liked about writing a book was that it, to like be aware of the fact that each story wasn't building on the next in the sense that you were coming with a stronger and stronger argument, but actually – Like each story was sort of complicating or challenging the ideas in the previous one. And that, I guess, feels more um, like true because, you know, I could pick a subject for The New Yorker and pick five different characters who would like illustrate that subject in such a way that you come away with a slightly different kind of truth. So it was nice to be able to have that tension between different people's stories and the truths that you might take away from them. And uh, yeah, I didn't want it to feel like just these are the cases I wrote about and I'm putting them in a book. I wanted it to feel like they evolved and that you need to read them in the order that they are in because like the overarching picture changes. Um, But it was also nice to feel like um, you, you leave with one understanding of psychiatry in chapter one, but in chapter two, that's sort of been destabilized but I guess I wanted to, my hope was that like the sense of destabilization was sort of added up to something that wasn't just destabilization.
0: In dealing with people who are still alive and who are, uh, the subjects of your stories or sources for your stories who have mental health considerations in their own lives. Um, how do you navigate that as a reporter? How do you navigate the fact that you may be adding uh, additional complications into someone who already has a complicated life?
1: I think all the people I wrote about, it was important to me that they wanted to tell their story, like they felt pretty active in the process, like they f- they knew what they had to contribute. It might not have been like exactly the same ideas I had, but they had strong ideas about what their story could do to help people. And so it didn't feel like I was ever convincing them. Like they were very much, you know, they had their own goals and those goals aligned with mine to a large degree. Like when I first started writing the book, I was going to write about this man who was sort of the reason for me wanting to write the book. and we corresponded for a year or two. And I did feel like he was ambivalent about being in the book, but he was gonna do it because maybe because he was fulfilled by the correspondence we had. But as it came to the point of me interviewing other people in his life, that's when I think he realized he did not want to do it. Um and so he kind of disappeared and was no longer he's no longer in the book. But I, I did feel that was instructive for me that like you know maybe there there are many stories where you do convince someone to participate but like not this I, to me not this kind of story like someone i think has to want to do it and and feel their own have their own reasons for being motivated and even if that like changes you know someone could say like well then you're not writing about like the statistically average person um but i but i guess i i feel like it doesn't feel right to write about someone unless they actively want to be written about.
0: Even when you have someone who is an eager subject, um, the topics you write about, like the place where the action happens is largely inside someone's brain uh, in their emotions. Um, What are techniques that you've found to bring that to life and also to get people to tell you about what they were experiencing inside their brains.
1: A lot of times if I'd read things that people had written in their diaries or even in in medical records, then it becomes much easier to say like, you know, at this point you wrote this sentence and I was trying to understand what you meant by that sentence. Like what, what were you feeling at that moment? So I think a lot of times I'll sort of use things that the person has said as a jumping off point so that. I already know that this is something that they were thinking about at a given point in time. Um, But I don't know, I guess, you know, there's so much amazing like novel writing about people's interior lives that I don't think, I mean, and that's something I'll do too. Like I'll, I will read a novel about the subject that the person and I are talking about in part, because then I can say, You know, I I was reading this novel and and in in her moment of like manic crisis, this person had this feeling and I might like even quote that feeling and then ask the person like if if they ever had something like that. So I guess I always think it's helpful to have – like I'm always looking for ways to imagine what it might be like and then if I'm imagining clearly enough, I can sort of use that as a way to ask a question that I wouldn't have known otherwise to ask either because of something they've written or something I've read.
0: That's a really interesting idea of of fiction as a gateway into nonfiction. Were there um, specific uh, works of fiction that that were influential on this book for you, or that you found yourself talking a lot to people about?
1: Actually, this is not fiction, but this was. Um, I, I was thinking about Isabel Wilkerson's um, "The Warmth of Other Suns." I did feel that that book was, and again, like she writes in a novelistic way, but that book is such an amazing um, description of how sociological factors affect people's mental health. Like it's not just family issues as it's often portrayed. Like it's, you know, it's moving, it's discrimination and how that all affects people's psychology. And I, I remember reading that book and just thinking sort of it prompted a lot of questions about like how even for Naomi moving to Minnesota was just this deeply alienating experience. And I think I had better language to even ask questions about like what it feels like to move to a new place.
0: Now that you've been um, doing this for a long time, you have the book out, like what, what excites you going forward and, and what kinds of stories are, are you looking uh, to do in, in the next stretch?
1: Yeah, I've been thinking about that a lot because I don't I think about how if you learn too much about a topic, sometimes it becomes I don't know what overfamiliarity does to to one's writing, but it, it I think there's a sense of being an outsider and and you need some of that like outsider perspective to be able to judge which details are revealing or interesting. So I I have thought like, am I too familiar with this subject and I should sort of write about something slightly different so that I can like preserve that sense of like wonder and curiosity and discovery uh, so that it doesn't feel like I'm, yeah, just sort of retreading thoughts that I've already had. I think about this with writers' careers in general, that, like, I'm always scared that a writer has, like, a couple of good ideas for a life and that the writer, like, keeps going back to those ideas. And for some people, those ideas are are fruitful enough that it works. Um, but I think that that's scary a little bit, like, and as I think about how do you write for a long, long time? Like, what um, what do you need to do to keep yourself from becoming like a caricature of yourself
0: all right well i don't have the answer to that question <laughs> but thinking about the grand uh cycle uh, i'd like to invite you back on the show circa <laughs> when, 20,
1: when i'm 50 <laughs> 20
0: 31 20, ish and uh, we can pick up the conversation
1: yeah i'm ready i guess when i'm 50 we'll see how things go
0: um well thank you so much for this interview i really appreciate it thank you This has been the Long Form Podcast. I'm Aaron Lammer. My co-hosts are Max Linsky and Evan Ratliff. This episode was edited by Seth Kelly. The show notes were by Susan Peterson. Thanks to everyone over at Vox Media. We'll be back next week.